Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Our focus this morning will be on Jeremiah 4, 5 through 31. I'll be reading 4, 3 through 31. Jeremiah 4, 3 through 31. For thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety, stay not. For I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail. For the fierce anger of Yahweh has not turned back from us. And that day, declares Yahweh, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, Oh, Lord, Yahweh, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or to cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like the clouds, as chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem besiegers from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around because she has rebelled against me, declares Yahweh. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard upon crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children, having no understanding. They are wise, 
and doing evil, but how to do good they know not. I looked on earth, and behold, it was without form and void into the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before Yahweh, before His fierce anger. For thus says Yahweh, The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, What do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me. I am fainting before murderers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant much grace now to any of us who have deluded ourselves that all is well with our soul whenever really the fiercest fury of your anger abides on us and only your long-suffering and patience restrain us from the pit of hell. Father, I pray that we would realize how serious it is to play with holy things as though they're mere trifles. I pray, Father, that those who are genuinely your people here, that whenever we, we deal with so many in this area, that we would realize the souls that we're dealing with, that we would realize how precious a gift life is, how so many are are convinced that heaven is theirs and they have absolutely no part in it, that all their religion is just a blaspheming of Jesus' name, 
and that this would move us to compassion, this would move us to lament, this would move us to weep, and yet also to be bold and claim that there is a God of judgment and justice that they will have to deal with. And that they would throw themselves in Christ and find His mercy and grace rich. Bless the preaching of your word now, Father. In Christ's name, amen. So in our study of Jeremiah, a new section begins here. Runs from 4 and verse 5 all the way through the end of chapter 6. And like 3, 9... Through 319 through 44, the, the section that's just preceded this, this new part is dominated by poetry, poetry with these elements of dialogue. But once again, this is no love poem. This is not even a poem of scorned love as the previous section was. Here, the poetry centers neither on Judah's infidelity or any hope of reconciliation. Here the theme is judgment. Here's poetry that would make Edgar Allan Poe wince. Or so it should, because this is no fiction. The terrors here are real and true. Our text opens with Yahweh commanding that a message be declared, proclaimed, Declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem. The question is, who's to do do this declaring? The assumption is Jeremiah, as we read it in English. But in the original language, declare, proclaim, say, are all plural. So to translate it into the vernacular, y'all declare. Y'all proclaim, y'all say. So God is calling for Judah and Jerusalem to act as a prophet to herself. So what's the message then? Declare, proclaim, say. Blow the trumpet, cry aloud, say. Judah is to say to herself, to say to herself. There's an emphasis that's here. Judah is to go around telling herself to be a herald. So again, now we're asking the same question. What is her message? What is she to tell herself to tell herself? Essentially, it's this. Get ready. Blow the trumpet. This isn't a musical instrument. This is an instrument of warfare. It's the warning signal. Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud. Say. These are all synonymous. And having blown the trumpet, the herald going through and giving a warning, what is the warning? What's happening? First, assemble. There's a military connotation to this. Gather, assemble, and get into the fortified cities. Something of an attack is coming of such significance that you don't go out and meet it, you retreat into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. So this is a further warning signal. The people having assembled, retreating to the fortified cities, a standard is raised to let Jerusalem know attack is imminent. Flee for safety. 
Stay not. The reason for this is that Yahweh is bringing disaster from the north and great destruction. The one warning them is the one coming. This is not simply Yahweh telling His people, get ready because an attack is coming as though He's right alongside of them. He's not warning them as a friend. He's warning them as their foe. He's saying, get ready for me. There's a bit of a taunt involved in this. There's no arrogance, but there is a taunt. I am coming. You are soon to face something against which you have no hope. No stealth is needed by God. He broadcast His blows because He knows there's no possible way that they can be blocked. Yes, the disaster that is coming out of the north is Babylon. But it is God who brings her. I bring disaster out of the north. Babylon is a lion. He's a destroyer of nations. He will make their land a waste, their cities without ruins, without inhabitant, verse 7. This is, this is that boiling pot that Jeremiah spoke of in chapter 1, precariously tipped towards Jerusalem, ready to spill out on her. The proper response to this declaration isn't to put on armor. It isn't to act defensively at all. The point of the warning, flee to the city, isn't so that they could actually make a defense that might withstand the siege. The point of this language is not to put on armor, but, verse 8, to put on sackcloth, to lament and wail. The proper response shouldn't be a war crime, uh, war, excuse me, a, 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 a warrior's scream to build up morale, but to lament and wail. She is to do this because she has not turned, uh, she's not turned to Yahweh, and so this means He will not turn back from them. She's not turned in repentance to Yahweh, and Yahweh's anger will not turn away from her. The word that you have is turned back here is that same single word in the original language that we saw translated again and again in chapters 3 and 4, the early part of chapter 4, as return, meaning repent. And now God is saying, I will not repent of my anger. I will not turn back from it. I will not turn away from it. You have not turned to me, and now I will not turn away from you. Not in the sense of faithfulness and long-suffering and patience, but in my anger. Whenever Judah retreats to the city, she'll find that those who have led her into idolatry are useless, useless to lead her out of its consequences. Verse 9. Courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled. The prophets astounded. you remember in chapter 2 and verse 8? Where Jeremiah said the priest did not say, where is Yahweh? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds, that is their kings, officials transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So now the kings who transgress the law are without courage. The kings who were not afraid to step across the line God drew 
are now afraid to step across the line of battle. They have no courage. The priest, who did not know Yahweh's law, they didn't know him, are appalled. They weren't appalled at their sin, but now they're appalled at these consequences. And the prophets who spoke by Baal, the prophets who said, peace, peace, these prophets are now astounded, perplexed, without answer, without word. So their leaders are found to be just like their idols, empty, worthless, broken cisterns that hold no water. In response to this word of judgment, Jeremiah laments, Oh, Lord Yahweh, surely you have deceived this people. You've utterly deceived this people. And Jerusalem saying, it will be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. What are we to make of this? The first response many will have is, is he crazy? In the light of this power and wrath to then accuse God. But notice that that God doesn't rebuke Jeremiah. Perhaps we should be hesitant to do so. Is there any truth then perhaps to Jeremiah's accusation? Is there any virtue to his lament? Have you pondered that maybe the problem isn't Jeremiah but us? Maybe it isn't that Jeremiah views God with less reverence than we do, but perhaps with more. How so? Well, first let's clarify this. Let there be no obscurity in this regard. God is the God of truth. Titus chapter 1, God never lies. Never. How might then Jeremiah, is there any possible way to think of God as deceiving without being, that being sinful? How might Jeremiah be thinking that God has deceived? First, it might be that Jeremiah regards the proclamation to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that they're to spread abroad. It might be that Jeremiah regards that as deceptive. You're telling us to flee as if that gives some hope that we can withstand the attack, but then you, you've made it clear there's no possible way you'll turn back from your anger. So, I think that's an unsatisfactory answer because of the word as we have it here. Second, it may be that this word also, as the word in chapter 4 did, comes during the reign of, Jerem- of Josiah. So, the nation's enjoying this time of peace The land is being purged of its idolatry, and yet it is certain that Yahweh's judgment will come. But the option that I think is most likely, most satisfying, is this. Jeremiah is saying that God has allowed the false prophets to deceive the people. Again, this hangs together with chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, we read concerning these prophets, they have spoken falsely of Yahweh, of Yahweh, and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. Chapter 6, 13 and 14. For from the least 
to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So is Jeremiah blaming God for the sin of these false prophets? In Jeremiah 14, we get an answer to that in part. Then I said, "Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And Yahweh said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. They weren't sent. They weren't authorized. They didn't get their message from God. And yet, let's compare Jeremiah 14, where we just read, with Ezekiel 14, where God says, if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, Yahweh, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. Or one other from the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned. Let me do, repeat that. God sends them a strong delusion. It is as consequence for their sin. He sends them this strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I don't think that Jeremiah is calling God a liar. He's recognizing he is sovereign in what's playing out with Judah. He's telling Judah to declare doom on herself. And God has worked in such a way that she won't believe it, buy it, or say it. It's coming. Jeremiah sees it coming. And he's lamenting, God, you've worked in such a way. They don't believe any of it. They won't say anything like this. They won't obey this. They won't herald it. The sword will be at their throat before they realize What's happened? We react to Jeremiah's objection to God's word and think he is blasphemously calling God a liar whenever if he heard our objection, he might think we're blasphemously denying his sovereignty. Is there truth in Jeremiah's lament? He hardens Pharaoh's heart, Exodus 4.21. He gives up men to the lust of their own hearts. Their own hearts, Romans 1.24. He gives them up to dishonorable passions, their own passions, Romans 1.26. He gives them over to their debased mind, Romans 1.28. And he's lord over the lying spirits sent into the false prophets' mouths, 2 Kings 2.22 
21 through 23. This is what we call the passive wrath of God. It's where he turns us over to the darkness within. He is sovereign. He's restraining evil by various means in this world. And the scariest judgment before the judgment comes in full is that we might be allowed to plunge into our own darkness and sinfulness and thus incur greater and greater wrath without any perception at all. God is sovereign. But the delusion, the lies, find their origin within. And so what God does is He removes His restraints as He's sovereign and Lord and allows us to plunge into ourselves. Augustine and Luther after him spoke of us in in our sinfulness as being incurvatus in se, that is curved in upon ourselves. We are not as depraved as we could be, but we are all born wicked, corrupt, and bent in on ourselves. And what we see here is what happens when God removes His patience and kindness and allows us to simply have what we really want and fall into the depths of our own darkness. Before the active wrath of God falls on Judah, and we see this pattern again and again in the, word, in the Word, before His active wrath falls, His passive wrath comes first so that we're totally blind to the wrath of God that abides upon us until it strikes So Jeremiah, seeing this, weeps. He cries out. Do we see anything like this today? Consider the many within charismatic ranks, the health and wealth prosperity movement, that their message is one of victory, conquering, prosperity, blessedness, A fresh Pentecost. Even whenever we come to Bethel Church in Redding, California, an era that its miracles and visions and signs and wonders will exceed those of the early church. A fresh apostolic age is what they boast of. Meanwhile, while they're touting this blessedness, the curse of God lies thick and heavy on them. As I look at Bethel Church, Bill Johnson, I feel righteous indignation. But this should check that, such that with Jeremiah, I also lament at how many are being led astray, and they think they stand with greater victory and faith and blessing and they're twice the child of hell. As I consider how a soft version of the prosperity gospel or feminism, mysticism, cultural Marxism are making inroads even to what were bastions of orthodoxy for so long, There's an indignation at those false teachers, 
that are involved in this, and then a weeping and a lamenting for the many who are being led astray and are clueless. There are churches rejoicing when they should be weeping. They're singing when they should be lamenting. They're so deceived that they think themselves prepared for a wedding feast when it's an eternal funeral dirge that is to be their song. And yet, I don't think Jeremiah in this doubted that God is sovereign and that He's good. Neither should we. And the next portion of our text opens not with what Judah should say, but with what Yahweh will say. It will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or to cleanse. This, this hot wind is not a useful wind. You can't winnow the grain with it. It will not separate the wheat from the chaff. This is a wind too strong for that. It's too much for that. It shows no discretion. This is not a cleansing wheat that will make known the wheat and the tares. This is, this is a wind so strong it will... It will take all. It will devastate all. Righteous and wicked alike. This is, a, this is a judgment so severe. There's no discretion in it. It's not helpful for harvest. It's harmful towards famine. This wind, as it were, is the very voice of God speaking judgment upon them. Verse 12. It is I who speak in judgment on them. The wind becomes clouds, verse 13. The clouds, a whirlwind. God's chariots as He rides swiftly to bring them ruin and destruction. And this, this imagery here of God speaking in the wind and the clouds and the whirlwind remind us of the 29th Psalm. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon, this mountain forest, to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. By this imagery, it's being made clear again that the great threat that Judah faces is not Babylon. It is Yahweh who brings her. More than you need to be saved from anything, you need to be saved from God. You don't need Jesus to save you because of all these other foes that are attacking in your life. You don't need some cheerleader to come alongside you and tell you, you can do it, persevere, you're enough, you're strong enough, believe in yourself and I'm here so that you can achieve and overcome these enemies. You need to be saved from Jesus by Jesus. The thing you need to be saved from is the holy wrath of God that you've evoked by your sins. It is God you have to deal with. And so again, the proper response then is not to prepare for a fight, but to bow to a Lord. Verse 14, wash 
the evil from your heart. This is the equivalent of that circumcision of the heart that we looked at in chapter in verse 4 of this chapter, removing the foreskin of their hearts. This is the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that Titus mentions, Titus 3.5. Washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. And whenever you're told it's the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that should awaken you. You can't wash. You can't do this. It's something you should do and something you can't do. You're blind. You're dead in your sins. You're deluded. You have no clue. You have to be a new creation. You need new eyes. You need a new heart. You can't give yourself a heart transplant. You need a heart transplant, and it's the Spirit who does this. So this should, this should cause this kind of despondency of self dependency on God. Judah is to do this, she's told, for because a voice declares from Dan, this is the most northern kind of border town. And then the threat comes much closer from Mount Ephraim, which is just to the north of Jerusalem. The besiegers from a distant land are on their doorstep. Verse 16, and they surround her like keepers of a field might surround a field. This would be to protect the field from um, raiders, predators. But these Babylonians aren't surrounding Jerusalem to protect it, but to attack it. And she attacks Jerusalem because she's rebelled against me, declares Yahweh. Babylon is only an arrow. When Babylon draws her bows, Yahweh has drawn Babylon. Babylon has been an arrow, arrows that God has been long in the making, and He's ready to let them fly. Judah's brought this on herself, verse 18. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. Judah turned to Babylon, her gods, her idols. Judah turned to Babylon and God says, to Babylon, you can have her. Yahweh told her in 2.19, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you, reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake Yahweh your God. Or Hosea put it in a way that complements what Jeremiah says here very well. He says, you've sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind. You've sown wind, emptiness, these vain idols, and now you're reaping what those bring, the judgment and wrath of God a doom that will reach your own heart. Now this poem of God's destruction is so intense that the pen, the prophet pen with which Yahweh is writing it, trembles at the words, crying out, my anguish, my anguish, or my bowels, my bowels. Now, we don't speak of the bowels as the seed of emotions as the Hebrew did, but we have no problem understanding how that analogy was formed in their mind because who has not heard a word so disturbing that the, 
their stomach turned at it. Jeremiah hears this word and he's sick to his stomach. If you cannot sympathize with Jeremiah's anguish at the news of the destruction coming upon his people, then I don't think you understand the ferocity of the whirlwind they're about to face. This bitter doom that is to reach Judah's heart causes the walls of Jeremiah's heart to fall. It, it beats wildly. He cannot keep silent for there is no silence. He hears the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war, crash following upon crash, and Jerusalem being laid to ruin such that she's spoken of as a tent and curtains she's so easily dealt with. You see, this vision has the effect on Jeremiah that it should have on Judah. He laments, he wails, terror, dread, such that he asks, verse 21, How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? God doesn't give him a timeline. He tells him why. Because my people are foolish, they know me not, they are stupid children. So you see the contrast that's being developed now? Whereas Jeremiah is sensitive to the word of Yahweh. And he laments and he wells. The people of God are stupid, foolish, dull, unperceptive, blind, ignorant to it. Remember Paul told the Romans, be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Here, Judah is wise as to what is evil and ignorant of what is good. How long? The implicit answer is, until you see what you have seen. Until this prophetic word becomes a reality. Until this vision is no longer just one of prophetic vision, a word from Yahweh, but it's your actual sight and you see these realities. And Judah's next words, or excuse me, Jeremiah's next words are the most poetically beautiful and yet the most disturbing. Verses 23 through 26. The opening lines cause you to recall both creation and the flood. I looked on the earth and behold it was without form and void and to the heavens and they had no light. Creation account opens telling us that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. In the following days of creation, what you see in that Genesis count is first God giving the earth form, dry land, water, Day, night, he gives it form, and then he fills the void, creates the various creatures to fill those spaces. Here, this is being reversed. Here, we see decreation. And we move from cosmic chaos to mountains being shaken to a specific city being laid waste, left in ruins. And just as when in Adam's sin, creation was plunged into ruin with him. So it's now whenever judgment falls to destroy Judah. As though the whole creation 
is acting in response to this. It's as if God's blow against Judah is so solid that all of creation shudders and the lights go out. He so shakes Mount Zion that it's as if it were Mount Vesuvius blacking out the cosmos. Or perhaps this language is meant to communicate this. That the very wrath of God that undid the world once by water and will do so again by fire is what Judah's being made to taste of. Sinner, the wrath of the holy God of heaven that will fall upon this wicked world and that will fall upon you unless you seek refuge in Christ is of this magnitude. Is his anger shakes mountains. It dissolves planets. It melts stars. His omnipotent power is not only creative, it is destructive as well. Even so, did you see this glimmer of light here? The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. I remind you of the way God spoke of this to Isaiah, of that stump that is left once the forest of Judah has been felled, the stump of Jesse, and from that will come one who will make all things new. On the other side of decreation, new creation. On the other side of death to the old man, is being born again in Christ, a new creation. Even so, this devastation, this destruction, this desolation is such that the earth mourns. The heavens put on the mourning garment of blackness because God has spoken. He will not relent. He will not turn back. Sinner, know this, that though God is long-suffering, He is not forever suffering. Do not mock His patience. Though His wrath be slow in coming, it is certain in coming. We see the Calvary and archers of Babylon attacking Judah next. Verse 29. Judah flees. She goes into the thickets, climbs up into the rocks. She abandons the city to seek refuge Cities are left desolate. And what does the desolate one do? She should put on sackcloth. We don't see her putting on armor. Instead, she dresses again in the attire of a whore and hopes to attract her destruction her destroyer. She's delivered over to her lover, but now she finds her lover despises her. And she wells as in childbirth. It's as though, I think we're meant to think this, she's giving birth to the child of her whoredom, which is her destruction. The agony of childbirth is used some eight times in Jeremiah, but as, it, as it's used here, coupled with verse 30, I think you're meant to, to think along these lines. 
the same lines of thought that we saw earlier, that her own deeds have brought this upon her. She's played the whore, and now those lovers she has fornicated with will murder her. There is such a judgment because there is such a judge. The holy and awesome God of heaven, Lord of hosts, God Almighty, His justice is poetic. Our sin is against an infinitely holy God and it is with an infinitely holy God that we will have to deal. The judgment of man will rhyme perfectly with his sin. And sinner, don't miss this. This is not a judgment of pagans. This is a judgment by pagans. By which you should understand this. When the wrath of God falls hot on this wicked world, its greatest heat will be felt by those who played with holy things. Do not presume on your church membership. Do not presume on your having said some prayer that a preacher led you in. Don't presume on having walked some aisle. Don't presume on having been baptized or partaking of the supper. Don't presume on your having read your Bible or having come to church. It is precisely because you play with the wedding ring while fornicating with this world, that judgment against you will prove so unbearable. You cannot wash your heart clean of your infidelity by your empty promises and actions, by your empty vows of I'll be faithful or I love you whenever all your actions prove your heart fornicates with idols. Your efforts cannot rub the stain out. They can only rub it deeper in. And so cry out to Christ. Flee to refuge, to find refuge in the only place it can be found. Not in any of your actions to your city where you think you can make a defense against this. The only refuge you can find from the wrath of God is where it has already burned against Christ for sinners. Plead the blood of Jesus knowing it is the only thing that can wash the stain of sin out. Sinner, hear this knowing that this God's salvation, the true God's salvation, is as certain for the repentant. His salvation is as certain for the repentant as His condemnation is certain for the rebellious. Know that the God who you see such power in His wrath is equally as powerful to save and deliver. Know that the 
the anger that you see displayed here that's so terrifying is the expression of a God whose love and forgiveness is, is, is of equal depth and intensity. Know that His salvation is as poetic as His justice. Look to the cross and you will see that there God made judgment and salvation to rhyme as Christ bore the wrath of God for sinners. Flee to Christ. Flee to the crucified and risen Christ. Throw yourself in abandonment on Him, despairing of anything in yourself, knowing that His promise of pardon is as sure as His promise of punishment. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on our sinners. And thank you for the great, immeasurable grace towards us in Christ. We cling to Him and Him alone. He is all of our salvation. Burden our hearts with the judgment that is to come upon this world. May we long for it in one sense, knowing it is the righteous judgment against this world that will prove our ultimate deliverance. And yet may we weep for the many who we love and care for, who are being deceived and who think all is well with their soul when it does not burden us to cry aloud, to blow the trumpet, to proclaim and declare that His judgment is certain, it is coming, it is imminent, there is no escape from it. They have only this hope, the hope of Christ. And so may we not be ashamed of the gospel. May we be burdened and lament and well. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.